I'll listen to the word from this Lord that we have been worshiping, his gracious provision for us, Jude 20 through 25. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for this, your word, and I pray that as we uh, look at the second-to-last uh, book of the Bible, that our hearts uh, would be drawn closer to you. We would develop the kind of reverence and fear and trembling at your word that we ought to have, but also an increasing boldness in your provision for us. So uh, just anoint uh, me and enable me to faithfully preach your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me begin with a story that I think will help to illustrate the importance of the book of Jude for today. Uh, a few decades ago, seven of us pastors uh, started a, an evangelical organization called CellNet, Christian Evangelical Leaders Network, and we had uh, really great times of praying together, fellowshipping together, serving together. It eventually grew to be a about, well, it was over 500 pastors, actually, and uh, we would often issue joint statements on various political issues like abortion, uh, writing uh, joint statements defending marriage against some of the, well, it was over 150 pastors who had been issuing statements uh, pro-LGBTQ, uh, and in various ways we were trying to serve our community. We trained a rapid response team for disasters. They were doing a lot of good stuff. I got the board to draft a solid evangelical a doctrinal statement that everyone had to sign. Now, initially, they didn't really see the need for this. They said that, you know, liberals aren't going to want to be a part of an organization like this, and so why do we need this formality? Uh, I disagreed. I pointed to the book of Nehemiah that says that you know, Sanballat and Tobiah, which we know later were enemies of God, they volunteered to help Nehemiah build this wall. Now, they may not have realized that Satan was moving them to do this volunteering, but um, they were quite willing to be involved with ulterior motives. And I gave illustrations of Sanballat's and Tobiah's uh, in every age that have infiltrated the church and how even in Omaha I had been part of an organization where they had taken over that organization. So I pointed out these are parasites. They have no life of their own, but they get their sense of significance uh, from being a part of these uh, evangelical organizations. It gives them a, a, a sense of legitimacy. I also pointed out another reason that we need doctrinal walls around Jerusalem is without those doctrinal walls, um, there, there is an encroaching of the world upon Jerusalem. And so we crafted and adopted a fantastic doctrinal statement, and I served for several years on that board. And uh, then I went off taking a break for three years. When I came back onto the board, I was surprised to find people that were heretics serving on that board. Uh, I confronted the original leaders asking them what was going on, and they had no idea that hostiles really had taken, uh, taken over, infiltrated. And they had signed, uh, or at least verbally given affirmation to the doctrinal statement with crossed fingers. When uh, these evangelical leaders expressed skepticism that there were any people like this uh, in the organization, I said, there are Sanballats and Tobias in this room right now, and I started to point them out. I said, that woman pastor over there is not even a Christian. 
Uh, she is non-Trinitarian. She worships a different God than you and I worship. This pastor is soft on homosexuality, which we believe is a stronghold that needs to be taken down. This pastor over here does not even believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, which is tantamount to calling God a liar. And I do not see how we can treat somebody like that as a fellow believer when they are not even, they don't even have the same basis as we do in the infallible Word of God. And uh, I said, this pastor over here last week said he sees no reason why we shouldn't include Mormons in this group. He has a different view of the, the church than we do. So I urged them to kick these people out. And over the next several months, tried and tried. But these people, these evangelicals, and these are genuine believers, but they just thought it was too mean-spirited. We need to kind of work with them. And they're so loving, you know. It doesn't seem, seem like not the loving thing to do. So eventually, I felt that I needed to leave the organization, and uh, the organization eventually foundered. But I bring that story up to illustrate how even solid organizations can be so quickly taken over by false, um, false believers and false teachers if the church does not have the will to fight. The book of Jude is a call to fight false doctrine earnestly not half-heartedly. Now, so far in our Bible survey series, we have seen that Paul, Peter, John, and now Jude have had to deal with false teachers and Gnostics who had infiltrated the church in the first century. The church was in a fight for its life. This was the time of the great apostasy that Jesus had predicted, and the church had become filled with parasites who were sucking the life out of the church, or to use a, a, the earlier metaphor. Uh, they were filled with Sanballats and Tobias who were tearing down the walls of Jerusalem. But praise God, as a result of the instruction of these last few books, the church saw a reformation and an explosive growth of the church in AD 70, and following and into the next three centuries, which pretty much took over the Roman Empire. Now, there were still heretics like the Valentinians and the Gnostics and others who tried to gain access, but the church took on this spirit, this command to fight, to contend earnestly for the faith, and uh, it grew and it grew. But the Reformation only happened because the Christian remnant was willing to expose errors and to fight against error in all of its forms. The moment the church gets soft in condemning error, it begins losing its power. And this is why I fear for the modern church. Uh, it has not yet embraced the fight in most denominations. Now, you'll notice in your uh, bulletins and your outlines that this uh, book is constructed as a chiasm. And the heart of the chiasm is verse 11, where Jude uses three archetypes of these parasites that have a pretense of life and worship and loyalty, but in reality they are enemies of God. So let's go through the book by taking each of the parallel points of the chiasm together. The two A sections, which form the introduction and the conclusion, both speak of uh, what keeps the remnant pure. Okay, I love these two A points that assure us that God can keep his elect from stumbling. Praise God, apostasy is not uh, inevitable. It is not a foregone conclusion. And I want you to notice that it isn't Jude and it isn't any church leader uh, who is the key to keeping the church pure. Uh, Jude just calls himself a bondslave of Jesus Christ and even as a brother of James, he doesn't highlight the fact that James and he, he were siblings of Jesus. You know, that could be really cool. You guys, listen to me. I was really close to Jesus. He doesn't do that. Uh, in humility, he sees himself as a mouthpiece for Christ, but it is Christ who is the Lord of the church. It is Christ who can preserve it. And so verse 1 goes on to say, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Now these are the first three things that distinguish true Christianity from false Christianity. The true Christians are called that's the first characteristic. We're called out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light uh, by the Father. Already he's setting up antithesis. There are some who are called and there are some who are not called by the Holy Spirit. Second, they are sanctified, which means 
they are set apart from something by the Father. Well, again, that speaks of antithesis, to be set apart. And thirdly, they are preserved. True believers will not apostatize. So don't get discouraged when you see apostates, uh, you know, being kicked out or leaving the church uh, over the past 30 years. This is, this is a purification of the church. The elect will be preserved. Praise God. The next three things that preserve true Christians and make them quite different from the Sanballats and the Tobias are the three things listed in verse 2. Mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. True believers are humbled enough by God's Spirit to recognize we need a multitude of mercies because we have a multitude of sins. Now, in contrast, the Sanballats and the Tobias of this life they don't recognize the need to be for, for mercy to be multiplied. Okay? They're self-sufficient. They're proud. They see no need for mercy. True believers see the need for biblical peace, which is the reversal of everything lost in the fall. Sanballats are occupied with other things. And true love is one of the uh, marks of the church, as Francis Schaeffer has pointed out repeatedly. Those are, I think, very, very encouraging words in the face of darkness. And so Jude knows that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are able to keep this antithesis going forward from generation to generation. They're able to preserve the church and keep it from falling into the clutches of Satan. Now the second A section, that's the conclusion I read earlier, verses 24 through 25, says much the same thing, but in different words. It says, Now to him who was able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. So both A sections are encouraging us that God is sufficient for this battle. There is no question about God's power or his grace or his glory or his ability the question is are we willing to side with his army and fight against falsehood or are we going to join the opposition or try to be neutral both a sections are a call to um, fix our eyes on the triune God who alone is able to keep us from stumbling and there's a lot more in those two sections that we don't have time uh, to get into the two B sections go on to show that if you're a true believer you are called to fight compromise with all your might. And if you are not fighting, you are part of the problem. Uh, the first call to fight is in verse 3. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, the Greek word translated as contend is uh, epagonizomai. Epagonizomai, it's, uh, it means to engage in intense struggle for something. So in the book of Hebrews, it's used for soldiers who fight to the shedding of blood. Okay, so that's an intense struggle. It's used in athletics to refer to um, wrestlers who are fighting as hard as they can uh, to win. So um, he's introducing the theme of the book which I think needs to become the theme of modern churches. If we are not fighting the effects of the fall in every area of life, those effects will eventually suffocate and overcome. Now, of course, before you can fight for the faith, you've got to know what the faith is. You've got to know what those doctrines are. Doctrine is critical to reformation. It's critical to holiness. It is critical to Christianity, and yet... I know many pastors in Omaha who hate doctrine. Uh, they have told me themselves that they hate doctrine. As one uh, pastor uh, told me, this was his favorite uh, line, love unites, doctrine divides. And I told him, you don't even know what true love is without doctrine. And yes, doctrine divides, but it divides between truth and error, between believers and unbelievers, between falsehood and, and truth. It divides between darkness and light. Of course it divides. But um, anyway, this is, this is a problem that we are seeing. Without antithesis, Christianity is dead. And that's what those divisions are about. It's antithesis. Verse 3 goes on. 
Uh, to, it's just so contrary to modern feel-good pluralism. Now, the second call to fight for the faith is given in verses 20 through 22. So if you go to the back, it's the, the second B section. And this one has both an inward and an outward focus to the fight. But you, beloved, building yourselves up on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And on some have compassion making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now the verbs that Jude uses indicate we've got to be very active in this putting on, this defending, this promoting of the faith. And I want to go through six things that we need to do if we are to be successful in promoting reformation and keeping the church from descending into compromise. And they're not in your outline. These are six extra points. Uh, you get bonuses this morning. First, we must build ourselves up on the most holy faith. You can hardly bring reformation to the church until you bring reformation to yourself. So building ourselves up in the most holy faith uh, involves ongoing study and application of doctrine and humbling ourselves before God and being teachable. Second, verse 20 says we must be praying in the Holy Spirit. Now this involves us in spiritual warfare. We are coming into agreement with the Holy Spirit who intercedes from within us with groanings, and he's groaning because he is displeased with all that he sees out there. And so prayer that is not stirred up by the Holy Spirit is not going to get past the, uh, the ceiling. If he was sent to convict the world of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment, and we're praying in the Spirit, we're going to be preoccupied with those kinds of things. There's going to be warfare in our prayers. Third, we are called to keep ourselves in the love of God. Uh, this involves fighting off any slipping from our first love for God. If, if we lose our passion for God, we're going to be vulnerable to demonic attack. We will be. Fourth, we are called to keep looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. Now, Bauckham's commentary says that this is an active looking that implies progressive mercy being extended until the final day. I can't get into all of the whys, but history has progress in applying God's mercies. Uh, this shows how important hope or eschatology is for this fight. The fifth antidote to apostasy is to recognize the need to rescue sheep from apostate denominations. Take a look at verses 22 through 23. And on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. So Judas saying sheep rescuing is a virtue. It's not a vice. It's, it's a virtue. Uh, the whole context of his discussion has been discussing problems within the church. He's not talking here about evangelism of people outside the church. He's talking about rescuing Christians who have bought into these doctrines being taught by the false apostates. They need to be rescued. So if we were to translate that into the modern context, he's saying, you guys need to be about rescuing true believers who are in the Methodist Church and true believers who are in the Presbyterian Church USA and in the Catholic Church and in those cults that are out there that claim to be Christian, claim to follow the Bible, but really are not doing so. And you're going to approach this work, he says, with fear and trembling because getting close to those false teachers could get you messed up. You could be contaminated by them. So it's definitely something to worry about. Now let me read you a few scriptures that call for a separation from apostates and apostate denominations. 2 Corinthians 6.17 says, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Romans 16.17 says, Avoid them. 1 Timothy 6.3-5 says, From such withdraw yourself. 2 Timothy 3, 5 says, and from such people turn away. He is not saying that tolerance of heresy is a virtue. He is saying the exact opposite. If you have any compassion whatsoever, you should be involved in sheep rescuing and encouraging the sheep to separate. 
Revelation said these words to true believers who remained in apostate churches in the first century. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and lest you receive of her plagues. So those who stay in apostate denominations begin to share in their sins and receive of their plagues. And I have seen many, many families who have stayed in the PCUSA or Methodist churches who are believers, and they say, but we want to bring reform to this denomination, little realizing all of the influence that's been happening to them, and they lose their families. Little by little, progressively, they lose their families. They have been defiled. Now, I will hasten to say that we aren't talking about churches that have minor doctrinal errors, but about churches whose fundamental orientation has been away from the doctrines articulated in this book. For example, the full authority and inerrancy of the Scriptures. The doctrine of salvation mentioned in verse 3. The doctrine of God, of Christ, of hell, etc. And the mainline denominations, they have all tolerated flagrant attacks upon these foundational doctrines. Now the last thing that Jude calls for in those verses is for us to hate what God hates. Jude says, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, obviously, he's using a metaphor there to describe, you know, this situation. But if you've pulled a person out of the sewer and he's got all kinds of stinky stuff all over his clothing, you're probably going to throw the clothing away and you're going to be very careful not to get some of that sewer on your own clothing. So he's using that to try to give us... uh, this emotional distaste, we've got to have that same kind of distaste for false teaching and false practice. It takes that kind of emotional distaste to motivate us to engage in the kind of intense fight that this book calls for. Now, if you look at the two C sections, they give us additional motivation to be involved in this fray. Both mention the destructive influence that these uh, heretics can have upon the church. Verse 4, for, so here comes the reason for contending, the motivation, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this condemnation, ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So I want you to notice that these men crept in unnoticed, or as some translate it, by stealth. This is what happened to Selmet. Christian Evangelical Leaders Network. The leaders didn't even realize that it was happening. And it's happened to many, many other organizations. It happened to Skyline Manor and Retirement Center in the same way. It was started by evangelicals, and you could not be on the board without signing your name to an evangelical statement, and yet liberals who did not believe those statements signed those documents so that they could get on. And then they started making changes, taking away all of the evangelical influences, even getting the state involved to remove these evangelical uh, influences in that organization. And thankfully, we were able to take that organization back. Uh, My father-in-law and I were actually conscripted to try to enter into the fight to get this back from the liberals. And for the most part, we were able to do so. But the point is, they snuck in by pretending to be evangelicals. It's a form of lying. And they've taken over numerous formerly good denominations this way, like the American Baptist Conference, which was a fantastic uh, church in the past, Evangelical Lutheran Church, the Peace USA, several others. And they can sound so righteous in their doctrinal uh, deviations. For example, they can talk about grace in glowing terms and yet use that grace doctrine as a cover uh, for violating God's laws. And they can sound so loving, but they don't define love by God's law. Here is a partial list of people who preached very, very good things. Some of them did. Some of them never did preach very good things. But these people, evangelicals, preached good things for the most part for 30 years, but who used their reputation to justify their own sin. Ted Haggard, Bill Gothard, Ravi Zacharias, Sammy Knuckles, Tony Alamo, Bob Coy, Dave Reynolds, Jimmy Swaggart, David Hiles, Bill Hybels, Todd Bentley, Mike Hintz, 
Eddie Long, Tulian Chavigian, Carl Lentz of Hillsong, and really, uh, the list could go on and on. I've got many more names of leaders that have uh, gone soft and fallen in the past uh, few years. And what, what many times happens is they bring their entire organizations with them because people trust these pastors or they trust the musicians and they love the music, like in the case of Hillsong that they were producing, and they begin to be influenced incrementally over time. The PCA has been going bad over the last two decades, and I would urge you to pray that that denomination would get back into the fight and uh, take back the denomination. Well, let's move on. The 2D sections give warnings from the past to show that they should not have been surprised by this. They should not have been taken by surprise. Verses 5 through 7 give three warnings of God's judgments from the Old Testament. Uh, verse 5 warns us about an entire generation of professing believers who mostly died in the wilderness. Hey, if you don't think that an organization can, can be taken over when there's a good pastor, just think of Moses. I don't think you've got a better pastor than Moses, and yet here was a whole generation, most of whom died in unbelief. God did not blame Moses for that. Verse 6 warns us about angels who are judged for their rebellion. Verse 7 warns us about God's judgments on Sodom and Gomorrah. And this is for two reasons. It makes it clear God's judgments don't just wait for hell. God judges these kind of apostates in history as well. He brings retribution. But those examples are also intended to make us realize that no organization is exempt from these sneak attacks of demonically motivated men and women. And no individual is exempt. Even righteous Lot was negatively influenced by his association in the city of Sodom, and he lost most of his family as a result. He did not maintain antithesis. Verses 17 through 18, which is the second D section, remind us about the warnings that Jesus gave in the Gospels of false teachers that would arise in the last days of the Old Covenant. Now, the point of those two sections is you guys should not have been naive. You should not have been blindsided. There had been plenty of warning in the Scripture that these kinds of things can happen. And yet the church nowadays tends to be naive. We have not learned uh, from history. We make the same mistakes over and over again. And sadly, the people make the same mistakes. When pastors fall, people feel burned and hurt, and they leave the church entirely. Well, Scripture says that's not a good answer either. We need each other. The point of these two sections is we need to learn from history. Now, the two E sections begin a list of attributes of false teachers that will be picked up again in the two G sections. And I'm not sure why Jude divided these lists up, uh, but it does make for a pretty cool chiasm. (laughs) Maybe there's other reasons, too, that I don't know about. But let's go through verse 8. Likewise also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. And I'll quickly run through each attribute. Commentators point out that the word dreamers refers to claims to new revelation. Now, not all apostates claim new revelation for their deviations from doctrine. Uh, Even non-charismatics will say that they're in the will of God when they're deviating on some of these issues, but it really amounts to the same thing. Um, I grew up with a very, very close friend. He was actually, when I was younger, my best friend. He became an evangelical pastor, and then he became a charismatic pastor, and then he became a liberal pastor, and eventually he ditched the God of the Bible. Doctrine by doctrine began to go, and he said he didn't believe in the God of the Old Testament because he's just too cruel, and I started reading Revelation to him, and he said, huh, well, I guess I don't believe in the God of the New Testament either. And I said, where are you getting your idea of God if you don't get it from the Bible? And he said that he had a personal relationship with God. He knew his God, and his God loved everybody and had an open arms for the LGBTQ. And I said, well, if anyone has revealed himself to you, it is a demon guaranteed because God would not contradict his word. But I just couldn't get anywhere uh, with him. I tried to talk to another evangelical pastor about his unbiblical idea of divorcing his wife and marrying someone else in his congregation. 
And really, it didn't matter how many scriptures I brought to his attention, he kept repeating this mantra, I know I'm not in the perfect will of God, but God has led me to do this, so it must be his permissive will. Dreamers. I mean, that's really what it amounts to. They justify their compromises by claiming that God is okay with it. Nowadays, liberal pastors confidently say, and you've probably seen it in the newspapers, very confidently claim God is okay with the alphabet soup of LGBTQ plus behavior. He's okay with it. The next word is defile the flesh. Now that hardly needs explanation nowadays. At least some of the backslidden pastors that I mentioned to you earlier defile their flesh with perverse sexual relationships. And it's astonishing how long some of them kept it secret. When you hear of no repentance, you know, by a Rabbi Zacharias on his deathbed even, it makes me wonder if he was even regenerate. The next word is reject authority. Now, obviously, if you reject the authority of the Bible in some of what it says, you're going to reject the authority of God's representatives. So it's not surprising that most of those leaders that I mentioned rejected the authority of those who were trying to hold them accountable. Actually, it was more than just rejection. They went on the attack, and we've probably all known people who have been attacked because they tried to hold some of these people accountable for their actions. The next phrase says, speak evil of dignitaries. Now, there is debate in the commentaries on whether these dignitaries are angelic, demonic, human, or all of those three. And in one sense, it, it, it doesn't matter. We'll see in a moment that the next verse highlights why our opposition to demons or humans is meaningless unless we are bringing God's uh, rebuke through the Scripture, because we have no authority in ourselves. Our only authority against demons or human dignitaries is God's Word. But these uh, people set themselves up to be the judges. It's really an abuse of office. The second E section is verse 16, and uh, it continues this description of the typical attributes of these false teachers. It says, These are grumblers, complainers, walking according to their own lusts, and they mouth great swelling words, flattering people to gain advantage. Wow, I think that is a perfect description of some of the megachurch leaders that have fallen. The first uh, word is obvious. Uh, grumbling was the sin that God judged the most in the Old Testament. It reveals a heart that has lost all sense of stewardship before God, all sense that we are bond slaves. You know, a bond slave doesn't think, you know, I, I deserve better. He's not going to be grumbling. He's thankful for God's mercies. Second word is badly translated. It's, a synonym, it's not a synonym to the first word. But the inward heart disposition of discontentment. And this is one of the things, by the way, that drives them to constantly be changing organizations. They're always pushing leaders to incrementally compromise more and more, all in the name of love. The third word is lusts or desires. They may often hide the fact that these men allow their own desires to dictate behavior rather than conforming behavior to the Bible. Fourth word is huperonkos, which speaks simply of prideful words. These are words that fail to see our own unworthiness. And the last clause is flattering people for their own gain. These teachers teach what will appeal to the crowds rather than preaching what the crowds need to hear. But they do it for personal gain rather than to serve the Lord. Now, uh, the teachers I mentioned, it's amazing how many of them gained vast amounts of wealth from the poor people that they made impossible promises to, promises of health and wealth. Now, does every bad teacher have all of these characteristics? No. But uh, you can find every one of these descriptions in at least some false teachers of the church today. Now, the two F sections are controversial. And before I get into how they fit into the flow of Jude's argument, I want to deal with that controversy. So here, here it is. People wonder, why would Jude appeal to a false pseudepigraphal book? And I just read an article even yesterday of one evangelical pastor who says, hey, if he quotes this book and it's a revelation of Enoch, then we have to accept the book of Enoch as being Scripture. 
And so it's kind of a weird thing. In my book on the canon, I explain exegetically why none of the Apocrypha, none of the Pseudepigrapha can be a part of the Bible. But for now, let me just prove that Jude did not quote the Pseudepigraphal book of 1st Enoch, no matter what the commentaries and study Bibles say. Now, it's true, both Jude and 1st Enoch record the exact same stories, just like cultures all over the world record exactly the same creation stories, flood stories, they don't get the details all right. But the Pseudepigrapha does not get this story 100% accurate. And I'll just talk about verses 14 through 15 to, to illustrate why it's not a quote, as so many people claim. Let me read verse 14. Well, 14 and 15, actually. Now Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about these men also, saying, so here comes the quote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment on all, to convict all who were ungodly among them for all their ungodly deeds which they have committed in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Now, 1 Enoch 1.9 also claims to quote Enoch, but with different words. Let me read that portion of the Apocrypha, and I'm using Heiser's translation here. Behold, he will arrive with ten million of the holy ones in order to execute judgment upon all. He will destroy the wicked ones and censure all flesh on account of everything that they have done, that which the sinners and the wicked ones committed against him. I've done a careful analysis of the two passages in the original Greek uh, of each one to see how close they are, and I've put that chart on the back of your outlines. Uh, now, that's the Greek translation. I find it interesting. Scholars cannot agree on which translation or which version of the book of Enoch Jude is quoting. And the reason is obvious. Jude doesn't exactly quote any one, not a single one of the versions that are out there. Now, since the Ethiopic, Syriac, and Latin versions were translated much later, everybody says, okay, yeah, obviously, obviously Jude didn't quote them. Uh, and so they say, maybe he quoted the Aramaic or the, the Greek. Aramaic uh, version only has three tiny, tiny, it's just a tiny fragment. It's got three tiny phrases. Most of the verses are, are missing. Yet even with that tiny fragment, there are three changes. When you consider how few words there are in those three phrases, statistically, it's impossible that Jude quoted the Aramaic. Uh, I'm just going to focus on the Greek in your outlines. Uh, Greek version of Enoch is far off. If you count up the words in that chart, 1 Enoch 1.9, it has an E in front of every line there, 1 Enoch 1.9 has 31 words, whereas the Greek of Jude's quote has 36. Of Jude's 36 Greek words, only 26 are the same in 1 Enoch. Enoch adds or changes 16 words that are not in Jude, Jude adds or changes nine words that are not in Enoch. Now, if Jude had first Enoch in front of him, he is deliberately changing the wording. And I'll just give you some examples. Jude says, Behold, the Lord comes with myriads of his holy ones. Now, in that short clause, only three words are the same in Greek. Only three. Enoch says, Because, while Jude says, Behold. Enoch says comes, while Jude uses the past tense, came, aothen. Enoch says he, while Jude says the Lord. Enoch has holy ones in the masculine, while Jude has them in the feminine, referring to a specific kind of angel. Jude's phrase, with his myriads of holy ones, is shorter than the more complex version in Enoch. Jude's phrase, to convict all the ungodly, is shorter and stresses God's judgment and convictions, whereas Enoch adds the words and destroy. Jude is more specific about the kinds of speech being judged, reviling speech, whereas Enoch speaks of generic evil deeds and words. Enoch adds the words in the last clauses there, and all flesh, the, and destroy, and it inverts two phrases. So in my opinion, there is absolutely no way that this could be a quote. It's better to say that this ancient history was passed down in Jewish lore, just like the creation story and the flood story have been passed down in various forms in other cultures. Now, those stories were not kept 
accurate because there's no inerrancy, right? There's no inspiration to keep them accurate uh, in every jot and tittle, but it shouldn't be surprising to us that every culture ought to have a creation story, a flood story, a Tower of Babel story, and other stories. On this story of Enoch's prophecy, only Jude preserves the story 100% accurately. So hopefully, I've demonstrated to your satisfaction, this is not a quote of the pseudepigrapha. Uh, by the way, only the Ethiopian Coptic, uh, excuse me, the Ethiopian Orthodox Church accepts First Enoch as uh, being a part of Scripture. So some people call it Apocrypha because they accept it. Most people refer to it as pseudepigrapha. Okay, let's, let's dig into this now that we've dealt with that, that um, side issue. <clears throat> the first F section is the story of Michael arguing over the body of Moses. Verse 9 says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him a reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke you. So he uses Michael to illustrate that the only authority that we have is the authority of the Lord. Even angels did not appeal to their own authority. They appealed to the Lord and his authority. We should not oppose any evil powers in our own strength. Well, let's apply it in modern terms. This is basically standing in opposition to virtually all American politics of today that refuses to inject the authority of God's Word into their differences. And so when you've got people arguing that Biden is evil or you're arguing that uh, uh, Trump is evil, uh, they have no way to demonstrate which one is evil because none of them are willing to appeal to the Bible, which is the only way we can justify such knowledge. But you know the same is true in the spiritual warfare. Um, I have seen charismatic pastors yelling at demons as if they have intrinsic power. We don't have any intrinsic power. Our only authority is the authority of the Bible. The second F section that we've already looked at is an inspired prophecy of Enoch from uh, Old Testament times that used God's authority against all sin and sinners that he was surrounded with. In other words, it was, it was an inspired revelation he was bringing. And again, the same point is made. God's representatives must be sola scriptura representatives. They use the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of man. Now, the same cannot be said for the false teachers that had invaded the church. If you take a look at the two uh, G sections, we have two more descriptions of the attributes that help us to identify false teachers in every age. So we'll look at the first part, verse 10. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Now it's obvious these false teachers think they know something, otherwise they wouldn't be teaching, right? So why does Jude say they speak evil of whatever they do not know? Well, it's because they can't know whether it is evil or not if the Scripture doesn't define it as being evil. I've already kind of demonstrated that in the realm of politics, right? People throwing these accusations, you're evil, the whole woke movement, all of this kind of stuff. Without the Scripture, how do you know? You cannot justify your knowledge without the Scripture. But they do have the revelation of God written on their heart. You can't justify that knowledge, but they do know things in their heart. But he goes on to say, even what they know from instinct, general revelation, they use like animals for their own selfish interests. Uh, verses 12 through 13 finish off the descriptions of these false teachers, at least if you're moving from you know, the front and the end to the center, it's finishing it off. Starting at verse 12, I'll highlight each word, and I want you to notice how these false teachers, they have no ultimate power to transform society like they want to do. They want to make it better. They only have the power to defile and to make it worse and to destroy these are spots in your love feasts while they feast with you without fear, serving only themselves. They are clouds without water, carried about by the winds, late autumn trees without fruit, twice dead, pulled up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now the first word spots is translated as shoals in some versions. Spots defile clothing, shoals sink ships. 
So they do have power, but it's not a power to help. It's a power to defile or destroy. Second, they have no conscience. They feast with you without fear. Anybody who comes to the Lord's table week after week after week with unconfessed sin has just as bad of a hardened heart as those false teachers had. To me, it's just, I wouldn't dare come to the Lord's table with unconfessed sin. Uh, to, but they do it all the time. It doesn't bother them. To me, it's amazing, just amazing. Next, they are said to be serving only themselves. By the way, this is why false religion and pagan politics will eventually fail. It will alienate people. It will fall apart because they are serving only themselves, not the public. Now, they make a pretense of serving the public, but man, I mean, even look at that 1.9 trillion, or is that right, uh, uh, COVID relief bill. Look at how much pork is in there. You know what it's about. It has nothing to do with serving the public. Or you look at what the, the false uh, teachers, the liberal pastors preach, and you'll see they have no prophetic voice against sin or against rebels. Most of the ministers that I listed for you that had massive falls were self-serving ministers. In contrast, God's grace enables true believers to lay down their lives for their friends, to love their enemies, to have spirit-given graces which can conquer the world. Now, here is a scary thought that I want to challenge you with. If you are doing nothing sacrificial to promote the cause of Christ, if you are serving only yourselves, you are living like these men and women who stand under God's condemnation. In other words, you're part of the problem. So stewardship, in other words, seeing the fact that God has purchased us and all that we are and all that we have, and we must use it for God, for His glory, that stewardship really is something that spells the difference between these false teachers and good teachers. And each of these points really is showing the antithesis between false Christianity and true Christianity. I think by now you're recognizing this has been a common theme in the last books of the Bible. The next phrase says that they are clouds without water. Clouds give the promise of rain, but when they pass overhead and disappear without delivering a single drop, you get disappointed, right? Well, these false teachers make promises that if you invest $1,000 in their ministry, you will become rich. I actually had a friend show me. It was a massive letter. It was a, a form letter, very obviously one of those things they plunk in, the, in the, the name, and even the spacing wasn't right, and they misspelled his name. But this, um, <clears throat> this televangelist, he said, I was woken up with a start in the middle of the night, and God put your name, and then it lists his name misspelled, your name upon my heart. And I wonder, why would God put your name upon my heart? And as I meditated upon this, God revealed to me he wanted you to support Oral Roberts University, <laughs> uh, give money to this thing. Uh, this is the same guy, you know, if you buy his anointed handkerchiefs, you're going to get healed. But these are the kinds of people, how many poor people get suckered by this kind of stuff, taken in, get hurt, and eventually become cynical about Christianity as a whole? The next phrase is carried about by the winds. Without absolutes, change is constant. Even the evangelical church of today seems for the most part to have lost the absolutes of God's law, and it is no wonder that they are more and more buying into woke theology. But you know, being carried about by the winds gives a sense of rootlessness and dissatisfaction to the human heart. Postmodernism is going to produce this rootlessness. We need, we need absolutes. God has built man to need absolutes. But unfortunately, the postmodern church is not preaching absolutes. They want a new, kinder, friendlier Christianity without law, judgment, hell, or even without disapproval. But that leaves them with nothing concrete to offer. And eventually, such false forms of Christianity, I believe, will disappear because they disappoint. And I praise God that they will disappear. This, this kind of theology is self-defeating. The next phrase is late autumn trees without fruit. Why do the mainline Presbyterian churches and the Methodist churches and the American Baptist churches and the Evangelical Lutheran churches, etc., why do they continue to have influence upon people? I believe it's because at one point they did produce fruit. They were fruit trees. 
right? They have a reputation of being good fruit trees. In part, it's because money that was laid up by faithful Christians of past generations continues to support uh, these uh, organizations. But once the fruitlessness of these denominations have become apparent, they start losing members like crazy. And I praise God they're losing members. People are voting with their feet. Uh, There's a hemorrhaging that's happening. And that's as it should be. They are late autumn trees without fruit. The next phrase is twice dead. They're dead in the previous sense of being past their fruit-bearing years, but they're dead in the root as well. Now that the evangelical emerging church has rejected both the inerrancy and the sufficiency of Scripture, they have lost their root. And if you lose your root, the whole plant dies. Don't expect culture-changing life from any church that rejects the five solos of the Reformation. It was those five solas that made the church once again able to turn the world upside down at the time of the Reformation. Sola Scriptura, Sola Gratia, Sola Fide, Solus Christus, Soli Deo Gloria. Those five solas must be recaptured. The next phrase says, pulled up by the roots. Praise God. I am praying that these liberal denominations will be pulled up by their roots. I'm praying that Planned Parenthood will be pulled up by its roots. That is an appropriate prayer. Um, I'm praying that anything, whether liberal or conservative, I don't care, that is not rooted in God and His Word would be pulled up by the roots. That's exactly what happened in AD 70. Through God's judgments, the true church began to flourish and to take over Rome. The next phrase says, raging waves of the sea. And we're probably going to see more raging against the true church of Jesus Christ by Satan and his kingdom in the next years to come. But I don't worry about that. I think that's okay because what that does is it's exposing the reality of their anti-Christian basis to deluded Christians who still act as if they can be friends with the world. So to me, it's, it's great. It'll wake up and purify the church. But the waves of false Christianity, here's the thing I take courage, encouragement from. He's using the concept of waves. Why? Because the ocean can't go beyond the bounds God set, right? So the waves of false Christianity cannot go one inch past the bounds that God has set for them. The waves of false teachers have been raging against John Piper, Kevin Swanson, Peter Hammond, James White, basically any other leaders who give pushback. The waves of false Christianity have raged against Calvinism, postmillennialism, theonomy, or any doctrine that gives hope, that gives a basis for taking over this world, a victorious face. And sometimes even genuine believers will rage against these doctrines because they don't know better. And sometimes it's an insecurity thing, sometimes it's demonic that's influencing. But if you can't win the argument, then they've got to attack our person, <laughs> you know? So that's where verse 13 goes. It says, foaming up their own shame, as the PCUSA and the Methodist Church have been foaming up their shame by promoting homosexuality, abortion, LGBTQ issues, goddess worship. Yes, they had jointly between the PCUSA and the Methodists, they had an organization where they were worshiping the goddess Sophia. It just, it just makes you shiver. And other shameful things, people have started voting with their feet. This is not a time to despair. This is a time to hold up the banner to which the elect can repair. The last phrase says, wandering stars for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. Now, I take the wandering stars as a reference to comets. I do not buy the liberal idea that they thought that planets wandered. They knew the planets didn't wander. Uh, This is comets. So, Comets, every once in a while, wander by and then pass off the scene and are swallowed up by darkness. And I think it's such a fitting picture of all forms of man-centered false teaching. This speaks of the fact that though these movements can attract a great deal of attention through the light they supposedly bring, even produce some fear and amazement, after a season, their effect will be swallowed up and people will return to God's orderly arrangement that he made at creation. Humanism is not the norm for human history. It is an aberration. It is a comet. It is a wandering star. Comets are not the norm for human history. God allows them for times and seasons. But this speaks to me of the permanence of true Christianity and the temporary nature of apostasy. And to me, it's encouraging. 
That's encouraging. But that brings us to the central verse of this book, verse 11. In verse 11, Jude pronounces God's judgments or woes upon all false teaching. It says, woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the error of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. So Cain illustrates everything that's wrong about the modern church that rejects the regulative principle of worship. He brought what he thought was a good sacrifice, and when God rejected it, he got mad. Apart from blood atonement, man's worship is worthless. And so Abel came sacrificing God-appointed blood sacrifices that looked forward to Jesus. Cain ignored Christ's blood sacrifice. He brought his own dominion as if our dominion counts at all apart from Jesus. The commentators also point out that Cain deliberately disobeyed God's law, not just in that sacrifice, but in his later life. Lucas and Green say this, Jude is saying that they understand very clearly the standards that God expects, but that they take it upon themselves to decide whether they are going to accept them or not. Now, of course, they would not say, those are God's rules and I will reject them. They're as subtle as Cain, denying that there is such a thing as right and wrong and that God will ever judge our muddled world by his absolute standards. That is the way of Cain. The same authors say about Balaam, Balaam takes the mistake of Cain one step further. He not only knowingly rebels against God, he encourages others to do so as well. So Balaam illustrates everything that's wrong about self-serving religion. He tried to give Balak what he wanted in his worship services that Balak spent so much money for, right? He's the tither. You better appeal to the tithers, you know, seeker-sensitive. <clears throat> and uh, when Balaam was not successful... He offered Balak side advice that was antinomian. He promoted immorality with the women of Moab, and it was a very successful strategy, at least for a time, until God dealt with it. The same authors say of the rebellion of Korah, what started out as free-thinking sin, Cain, and turned into an undermining weakness, Balaam, now becomes a full-scale revolt which ends in judgment. So Korah used the doctrine of the universal priesthood of believers to overthrow the authority of Moses, Levi, and the elders. And when Moses prayed to God, said, God, judge them. I can't deal with it. You judge them. God opened up the ground, and uh, it swallowed the, the rebels up. We are living in the time of Korah when false teachers no longer make a pretense at being submissive. Now, initially, they're sneaking in. They pretend to be submissive, right? But as they gain numbers, they become more bold. Overthrow of lawful authority, I think, can be seen in every quarter, including Reconstructionist quarters. And God pronounces his woes against that. And I believe it's appropriate for us this morning to pronounce God's woes and judgments upon the postmodern church that has rejected God's law and embraced socialism, evolutionism, antinomianism, feminism, woke theology, the revoice movement, and many other viewpoints that undermine the sufficiency and the authority of the Scripture, and of the Gospel as well. And so we'll end this morning's service by singing an imprecatory psalm. We're going to sing Psalm 68 against the false teachers and parasites who are undermining the life of the church today. But before we do so, let's pray. <clears throat> Father, it grieves us to see Reformed and Evangelical churches compromising on even obvious issues like the LGBTQ issues of our day. It grieves us to see denominations like the CRC, the ELC, and other formerly sound denominations embracing homosexuals and women pastors. It grieves us to see ministries like Rabbi Zacharias International Ministries uh, being sidelined by the immorality of a leader. It grieves us to see powerful preachers using their positions to rake in millions of dollars, all the while compromising the sufficiency of Scripture. It grieves us to see charlatans commanding the weather in the name of Jesus as Cat Kerr does. It grieves us to see antinomians uh, running rampant in the, in the church of Jesus Christ. 
It grieves us to see so much rejection of the paradigms that you have established forever in the Bible. But we know that it grieves you far more. And we take comfort from the book of Jude. Uh, it encourages us that you hate these compromises far more than we do. And we come to you asking that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the darkness that has invaded the church would be washed away. That wolves would be removed from the pulpits. That ministries who besmirch your name would be destroyed. That the church would once again become a holy army, totally sold out to Jesus and advancing his cause. And Father, as we bring Psalm 68 against the false teachers of our day, we pray that cleansing fires would flow even this day from your throne in heaven and bring revival and reformation and restored antithesis and whatever judgments are needed. By the power of your grace, I pray that you would teach the church to once again contend earnestly for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And just as Jude promises that you are able to keep us from stumbling and that you will preserve us through Jesus Christ, we pray for your protection, that it would rest upon each one here. We pray this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen.